the glory days are here to say the 80s horror show. Take a stroll down memory's lane, it's time to start the show. The gory days, the gory days, the gory days, the gory days. Welcome to the gory days, the show where we take a stroll down memory slain to remember our favorite horror movies from the 1980s and beyond. Kyle Leone here, your host for another week, and what a week it is. Oh my God, if you're listening to this when it comes out, it's been a few days since the big announcement, but uh, I'm not afraid to celebrate. It sounds like Biden has clinched the election, has got the 270 or more. I think it's up to like 286 with the swing Pennsylvania. And that's it. And I wish I could say it's over, but really it's just the beginning. Like we've turned over that stone and we've seen all of the nasty bugs underneath. You can't unsee that. They're all still out there. And as loath as I am to say it, I really don't think Trump is going to go to prison. But um, that's really exciting news. And it's hard not to be excited about that. But this isn't a politics podcast, although today you wouldn't be uh, incorrect in thinking that because we're talking about a very political movie. We're talking about John Carpenter's They Live, the 1988 classic that is unfortunately eerily prophetic of our times in this day. And I'm not doing it alone, ladies and gentlemen. Today I have a guest. That's right. I'm going back to guests, and I have a great one to start us off for what is, I don't know, what is this, season three, season four? I don't know. I don't care. Of the gory days, it's my podcast. I have a new friend of mine, right? I hope I'm not overstepping when I say that, but a no, no, writer. No, friends. Well, awesome. Yeah, let's just call it what it is. A writer, director, producer here in L.A., um, an L.A. native? Uh, oh, so I, I convince people that I am because I've lived out here for so long, but I'm originally born in Tennessee, the red state, Tennessee. So I, I also try not to tell people that either. Not a problem. Uh, but, You're safe but, here. I'll keep yeah, your secret. I, I've been here since I was five and I'm, I'm 29. So I, I think it's safe to say I'm an L.A. guy. Well, for listeners who may not recognize that voice, please welcome to the Gory Days for his first time, Christian Rowe. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kyle. I am really looking forward to being a part of the gory days and really looking forward to talking about they live which is one of my favorite movies of all time me too are you experiencing the same kind of relief that i am that like since 2016 we've been waiting for this you know so to to paint a picture it it rained in la today and i i live in north hollywood so the rain isn't quite here instead we had these kind of gray floating clouds and then the sun peeking through is what i woke up to and I had about 10 different text messages from very various different people telling me that Biden won and either showing me images, sharing memes, you know, videos, whatever it was. And I that was probably the, the best day I've woken up to in 2020, save for the day that I got married. But, you know, like that, that was pretty great. This is a close second. Uh, so I am I'm feeling that exact same sense of relief you are. I can't think of a more poetic image than the sun peeking through the clouds. Right. It's like the the sun coming over uh, the mountain in the Battle of uh, Helm's Deep when the Knights of Rohan come like, oh, my God, there is hope. There is hope. Exactly right. Exactly right. And, you know, like I I, not to not to quickly bring the clouds back, but this is just as you pointed out, this is just one step towards what we got to do. But guess what? Today we celebrate today. Yeah. Today we can have a good time and, and remember that, you know, there, like, I, I saw an anchor on CNN have a breakdown uh, today, like literally crying as he was talking about this. 
And he specifically said, this is a really important day to remember that character matters. And I think that was a really beautiful, beautiful statement. So going forward, that's just kind of what I always want to remember is that character matters. uh, Good people matter and good stories matter and prophetic poetic imagery matters. And we got all of that in this election cycle and specifically in this crazy year of 2020. Sounds like you're kind of putting on your writer, director, producer hat and looking for maybe the movie rights to this horrible thing. <laughs> oh my God, no thank you. Uh, <laughs> I can't imagine the like, you know, like Adam McKay's Vice that came out with uh, Christian Bale, kind of this weird backhanded humanization of Dick Cheney. I really hope we don't get that with the Trump administration. Right, I, I hope so as well. And, you know, I consider myself, when, when I advertise myself as a writer director, I consider myself more of a satirist. And I look at this situation and I don't see how we can satire this. Like, I don't think we can really take Trump as a subject matter and make him satirical in nature. Because, like, I, I had written a script a few years back um, with uh, with a friend of mine, and it was about a dictator. Like, there was a, it was a dictator character. And we went back recently, I think about two years ago, and read the script again and, and found so much of it was similar to Donald Trump that the, the, the far-fetchedness nature of our script didn't work anymore. Yeah, it, it became too believable. And so that, yeah, that, the, I don't want to touch the Trump presidency as a as the main focus of a storyline uh, forever. I think it, I think, again, it's just one of those wild things that can't be uh, done correctly. It's kind of like what happened with Veep is like mm-hmm. you had the absurdity of that show get overwritten, overshadowed by the absurdity of the real world, that you could open your phone and find something honestly more absurd than the things that they were trying to say is comedic on that show, which is unfortunate. Precisely. I hate that. <laughs> right. It's it's really kind of sad. You know, I used to think of myself as as somebody who could like find the joke in reality. Like I could laugh at it, but uh, there does cease to be a point where things are funny, you know, like it's, it, it becomes scary. And when satire becomes scary, it becomes a horror. It's, and kind of I don't... What, happened, it's what happened with this movie is yeah, like, you absolutely. look at the themes and it's like, I'm good. We're going to get to it a little bit later, but like the subtlety in it is cute because we're at a mm-hmm. point where there's no subtlety. You can just get up and lie directly to people on the air have other people live fact check you and it doesn't matter right you you can just get up there and say lies um but before we get into the movie i wanted to talk about two projects that you have working on uh first off the martian broadcast just wrapped recently congratulations ah thank you so much yeah that was a as a true labor of love uh we premiered the last episode on halloween so that was a really good time a couple weeks back that's awesome um Mm -hmm. No, I, I don't know if you've been listening to some of the past episodes, but I've been uh, giving it the little gory days boost at the end of my I have, episodes. I have, so. and we we appreciate that. We're seeing it on the Podbean analytics. We're we're seeing that oh. we are getting more listeners, which is great. I mean, it, we we always believed that when we created this show that it wasn't going to be like a, a television or a movie event where you have to see it right on opening day or you need to like watch it weekly. Sure, we released it weekly, you know, as traditional release schedules dictate, but we always firmly believe that the show is just one of those things that can find its audience whenever. So, you know, the more people that check it out, the more people that listen to it, we are just thrilled to have you enjoying it as much as we did putting it together. Cause it, well, it it's I, a lot of fun. 
I think it's a testament to you or maybe even your whole team. I don't want to like give you all of the credit necessarily. No, but no, you shouldn't. The team really like this. I If I tried to do this like solo, even if I tried, it would come out as like one thirty second of a <laughs> of what we've accomplished. The the team truly and a skeletal team. I'll, I mean, I'll give them all a shout out. We got Casey Hammonds. You got Jordan Sidham. You got uh, Daniel Patton. We got J.D. O'Day and Jason Crow these like incredible people that we all worked for free on this um, came together during quarantine, especially and, and made this work just truly like I love them. I couldn't, we couldn't have done it without them. The project would not exist without their power. So, uh, so in case shout people, out to them all, of course. So if people don't shout out to all of them, in case people don't know, the March and broadcast is a limited six episode limited series podcast, uh, scripted drama that tells the story leading up to the first uh, to the H.G. Wells, uh, no, the Orson Wells uh, War of the Worlds broadcast, which is written by H.G. Wells, which is written by so, H.G. Wells. No. no relation to Orson Wells, is there? No, no. And there was a, we actually in the first episode we had a joke that we stripped in the uh, in post production about <laughs> that uh, when Orson pitches War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, uh, his producing partner says, oh, you're trying to get your family involved now, are you? <laughs> and and Orson just kind of blows right by it, and we we unfortunately got rid of the joke, but that was something that we, we found during the writing process. But yeah, uh, you're absolutely right. It, it tells the story of Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the air, uh, the team that would put on radio shows for CBS every week. So, you know, Sunday was their premiere day, and around like 8 o'clock, uh, east to West Coast, they would be blasting their radio show out. And for those of you who aren't aware, in 1938, um, when the when the show first came to really be powerful, and it was 14 weeks after the show had come out, so there was 14 shows prior to this, um, War of the Worlds became their Halloween show. And what they did is they created essentially a fake news broadcast, uh, um, implying that a real alien invasion was happening. And if you go and listen to it now, it's it's incredible. Like it truly is a captivating listening experience because you can understand why when the next morning they all woke up and the entire nation, as it were, had a response to this because they had never experienced anything like this. It, it was way it ahead was of wild. its time. Exactly. And so our, our limited series podcast doesn't the, the last episode follows the, the day of and the release of it, but it. Really, the story is about Orson Welles and the team of people who brought it together. So if you really like history uh, or like old Hollywood kind of facts, we, it's very well researched. Uh, we spent about three years researching the project before we really kind of put pen to paper, making sure that we got uh, as much as we could down. And uh, if you like, you know, some people have, have called it a comedy. They're like, it's really funny. There's, There's like, definitely you know, yeah, some humorous elements in it that I didn't expect. Right. And, uh, you know, when I'm writing it and when Jordan and I were like going back and forth, I guess we would chuckle, but we just never uh, considered it like an outright comedy. But it, there are a lot of, as you said, humorous elements to it. There's a lot of drama to it. There's, you know, again, just I, I urge everybody to go check it out if you haven't already. I think if, I think you'll enjoy it. Oh, I know you will. I think it's really digestible. It's six episodes, like I said, about 20 minutes, 20, 25 minutes to each one. So you can knock it out in like a day or two days if you're binging it. And with the way podcasts are, like, uh, I'm not sure how many people were watching it, like if you were able to see on release days, but uh, just from my background, now that it's all the way out, people are going to be binging it and it's out there. Like you said, audiences will find it. And right. even though it's a period piece, it really does feel timeless. Like the production qualities and just the way that you've structured it. I want to give a shout out to the actor who plays Orson Welles, Ari Stidham. 
Mm-hmm. He does an amazing job. I mean, I've grown up with the Maurice LaMarche, you know, impressive impression of Orson Welles. Um, right. But he adds his own flavor to it that is much that almost sidesteps that um, comedic Maurice LaMarche voc- vocal affectations into like a more believable Orson Welles. He does a great job. Yeah, he was. So uh, Ari Siddham, um, a fantastic actor. I met him when I was actually his waiter at BJ's <laughs> Brewhouse. Um you know, everybody in the entertainment industry uh, that that's got to pull themselves up by the bootstraps becomes a waiter or something of the sort, and, and that's what that's what I did for a really long time. And um, so he was, I was his server for a while, and we would talk. And this was before Ari got on to CBS's Scorpion, uh, where he plays the character Sylvester as a as a season regular, and uh, or as a series regular. He's there throughout the whole damn thing. Um, and he, I mean, I love Ari. Ari's just got a great creative energy and a great, really big passion. But um, there was a day where he invited me to go see a production of a play that was he was doing in front of his house, right? And I was like, wow, this is a really cool DIY thing. And he built sets and he and he, people were in costume and props were there and it was really awesome. And his brother, who I had also met through the same kind of means, you know, being their waiter, you know, they would come in at midnight at BJ's to order pizookis and orange cream sodas. Like you do. Uh, like you do uh was there and um when we've and so jordan i had always known jordan as a theater actor more stage driven and when we first conceived the martian broadcast it was meant for the for the stage like it was meant to be just a a main thing but one of the big points that jordan wanted to when we were creating the show for the podcast world was like we wanted to avoid um the Maurice LaMarche, as it were, right? Because yes. everybody knows that voice. Everybody knows Orson Welles as as that kind of, ah, yes. Uh, as the brain. I'm, you know, right, as the brain or, or you know, when he's drunk trying to sell uh, French <laughs> wine. Um, but so Jordan and I talked about, like, really trying to find what a human Orson Welles sounds like, like what would be a younger version of that? Yeah, because he's also 24 in the in this uh, story. He's he's still a child. I mean, he was he was a child powerhouse anyway. But again, we also went and found like the original non doctored pressings of the uh, of the uh, War of the Worlds broadcast. Wow! Because what they had done is in subsequent releases, they had kind of like added bass to a lot of the voice because. Back then, the microphones didn't pick up bass as strongly as they do now. Kind of like so a to, George Lucas remaster. Yeah, exactly. So it, it actually changed things. So if you go back and listen to like the OG uh, recording of it, Orson Welles is a much higher uh, p- uh, pitched voice. And so uh-huh. that makes me wonder, like, how much did it really evolve over the years? And really, what was the technology that allowed it? Um, but we still wanted it to sound like Orson. We, we still needed somebody to command the space in the room. And, you know, seeing Ari's creative energy throughout a lot of different things and Jordan obviously being his brother, there was a there was a way that we found a, a pretty easy like, hey, you want to audition for Orson Welles? And I think for a lot of actors, that's a hard role to, to pass on, you know, because we did turn to backstage casting and, and other casting avenues for the for the other roles. Mm-hmm. When we put up Orson Welles, because we did want to, you know, give a chance to maybe look for other people. I mean, we got hundreds of submissions, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. And I would say probably out of those hundreds, we got 10 that were close and eight out of those were doing their own version of a Maurice LaMarche. Hmm. Uh, two other people were trying their own thing and it was unique, but nobody could beat Ari. You know, as you said, he, he truly creates a, such a captivating version of Orson Welles. 
Yeah. Uh, there's an electricity in his performance that does feel like it. I feel like I'm listening to the guy that I've seen in those pictures and documentaries commanding a room. It's great. Um, Thank you. Thank you. So, Have yeah, you finished I, it yet? I'm going to put you on blast. Have you finished it yet? <laughs> I listened to the last episode and got halfway through before I had to start. You got halfway up. through the last episode. <laughs> I Man. know. Oh my gosh. Okay. Oh All my right. god, dude. You're okay. No. Yeah, putting me on blast. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. It's it's I totally fine. It, but that was the one thing I was anxious about. It's you like, were just okay. like he's gonna he's gonna he's gonna ask me that, isn't he? He's gonna uh, ask me if I finished it. It's it's totally fine because, for example, two. Of my roommates play uh extra background voices in the show and they haven't listened to it at all yet <laughs> so like don't don't sweat the fact that you're even on the last good. episode like i i'm so glad that you got there like to me you know if i'm having to play favorites the first and the last episode are my favorites you know i wanted to in, i wanted to gut punch introduce everybody to who these people were in the first and i wanted to like end on the the tallest rooftop possible in manhattan on the last one oh, not I saying like that, that not saying that all the other ones aren't, you know, amazing and fun, wonderful and fun in their own way. I mean, not to spoil it, but in one episode, the fight sequence that happens, that's like my favorite, favorite thing that we did in the show. Because again, there was a lot of that crazy amount of uh, a post-production to help build. Because how do you create a fight in an audio sense? How do you yeah. make that believable? And uh, that, that really sung for me. So, you know, the whole series is great. Go listen to it. It really is. It really is. And we're going to leave a link in the episode description. But why don't we talk about something I did finish, which is your sure. uh, short film show, Mercy. Um, oh, thank you. I want to make you. sure we have enough time to talk about They Live, though. So um, let's, We will. Like, we will. I'll just make we'll, we'll this quick. I just want to say that you, it is, I don't need to tell you, you've got the laurels to, to, to uh, prove it, but you've got a fantastic eye for creating a consistent atmosphere of tension that like logically escalates to that montage of terror at the end like it's i when i finish it i wrote it down i said i finish it and it feels like the first act of a greater story i'm sitting there and all i want is for her to is for mercy to like claw back some kind of agency and so it, it tells so much with so little and builds this surreal terrible world with just the one location that makes me beg for more when it's done well, uh, you know, it's funny that you you say that. So it, it really kind of is that. Um, Show Mercy is a proof of concept short to a feature length film that I have called The Complex. There you go. Um, which so that that your assessment of what it is is exactly what we wanted to accomplish. You know, we wanted people to basically be chomping at the bit saying, like, give me more, give me more. The short was made for less than two thousand um, dollars. And which, again, a lot of people came through, worked for us for free, which was truly wonderful. Again, this is a, this is a project that would not work without the team involved. Um, but it's it is one of those things that now, especially in quarantine and the covid timeline, the idea behind it was always meant to be a very low budget thriller that took place primarily in one location with a very limited cast. Um, and so. You know, that's now that it's done with its festival tour, we have one more festival that it's uh, being decided upon right now. And once that's done, it'll be kind of out in the ether. And we're going to hope hope to make some connections with people that can make that that a reality for us, because, you know, it would be a pretty good, pretty good uh, thing to do. It could be. I mean, listeners may find that tactic familiar from the Evil Dead episode. It's exactly how Sam Raimi got his start. He didn't wait. He had an idea and he wanted to make this big, giant movie. 
He didn't have enough money, so he made a proof of concept of what he could make, shopped that around, and the rest is history. So I think that's awesome. And Thanks, man. I would really love to see, I mean, because you really leave the extent of the horror at the end up to me to interpret, up to the viewers. Like, does more guests mean more girls, or does that mean people she's going to entertain? Ugh, but nice right. job. Right. Yeah. And for those for those uh, that don't know, the, the the main theme of the piece, or at least the social issue that I'm trying to tackle here, because again, I try to bring a lot of social issue into my work as we'll talk and they live and how it was a major influence. Um, it was the uh, it, it's about human trafficking. The story is about an individual who basically uh, buys and sells women on a uh, illegal marketplace and kind of rehabilitates them, turns them into what he considers the ideal girl. Or the ideal woman for a for a toxic masculinity film. Um, so it's been, uh, you know, one reviewer of the script which uh, won a competition last year called it the uh, it's it's get out for toxic masculinity, which you know I think is is like a good way to look at it. I don't think it's as funny as Get Out. I think there's it's still a little too dark, but uh, it, it's a, a story that I think is really important right now. Especially we need to combat some major issues in the patriarchal mindset. And to me, film has always been a really captivating lens to being able to show you the truth of the world uh, through entertainment. And, you know, I'll, I'll use that to segue into They Live because... Oh, well, that's again, the thing. I totally agree with you. TV and film is like a mirror that either reflects what society already is or is an attempt to challenge or kind of shed light in a way that you never thought about. Some of the best satires make you... Th- think they're not just you know idiocracy that are really funny satires there's some really good like they live so yeah why don't we talk about that uh the movie we're talking about today is they live from 1988 written and directed and the music and almost everything by john carpenter he's one of those people who when he makes a movie he's got to have his finger in everything uh but he's humble enough to make up pseudonyms for stuff so that it doesn't just say John Carpenter, John Carpenter, John Carpenter throughout the entire opening credits. So interesting enough, this movie is officially written by Frank Armitage, who does not exist. It's a pseudonym Mm -hmm. that John Carpenter made to ostensibly give credit to all of the people who wrote the script, but really it's an homage to uh, H.P. Lovecraft. So why don't we just get into how the movie got made? Unfortunately, Big Trouble in Little China tanked. John Carpenter had a lot of trouble looking for funding for his movies, so he returned to low-budget filmmaking and signed a four-picture deal with Alive Films and Universal Pictures. The first one was Prince of Darkness. The second one was They Live. And that's it, because Alive Films tanked. It went under after that. (laughs) So he got out of his (laughs) four-picture deal with only two under his belt. So John Carpenter grows up in the 60s, kind of like my dad, and because of a child of the 60s, witnesses kind of the social upheaval of Nixon and Watergate and grows up with this internal hatred and vitriol toward authority and the lies that they try to shove down our throats. So with all of that in his mind, he discovers this short story called Eight O'Clock in the Morning, written by uh, Ray Nelson, that was also turned into a comic book that's basically about a guy who is hypnotized, finds that his world is not what he thought it was. He's been awoken and he has to fix it by eight o'clock in the morning. Jared Carpenter bought the film rights to both of those, wrote up a screenplay and the production company alive and universal gave him about $3 million to put this together. And so he cast pro wrestler, Roddy Piper. (laughs) Roddy Piper. 
Yeah, uh, and Keith David again from The Thing. Um, and they shot in about eight, week, eight weeks in and around downtown L.A. on the street among the people, which is hilarious. <laughs> There's a couple moments where you just see people kind of wander into the shot. And it was released a week after it initially wanted to be released. They had to push it a week to uh, move out of competition with Halloween 4, the first oh, Halloween that. that John Carpenter didn't work on. <laughs> so the thing that he started, he suddenly was competing with, and he had to move his movie to the following week. But it worked out oh because God, it turned out it was uh, closer to the election mm-hmm. in oh, 1988. I- and yeah. that, you know, that obviously syncs up pretty well for the, the main uh, thesis of the piece. Exactly. And it's so funny how it worked out because it tanked, essentially. I mean, it was the number one movie in America that weekend and then fell off the face of the earth, disappeared, and then got a cult following once it made it onto VHS sales and stuff like that. Right. But why don't we quickly review what happened in the movie so that we can talk about some of our thoughts and the themes So a nameless drifter looks for work in L.A. He literally doesn't have a name. The credits name him as Nada, John Nada, which, of course, is Spanish for nothing. Uh, He moves to L.A. looking for work when he stumbles upon a conspiracy group that believes humanity is being manipulated by aliens who make up the ruling class and seek to exploit the Earth to exhaust its resources, all while dulling the populace with some secret signal broadcast through TVs. Isn't Isn't that crazy? Wild. Turns out they're right. Turns out they're exactly right. And the plan is to distribute sunglasses that reveal the truth. And so our hero dons a pair and immediately kills some cops, (laughs) goes on a killing (laughs) spree. And after some violent misadventures and a six-minute fight scene, he recruits Frank, played by Keith David, um, and the two catch up with the resistant fighters who are going to destroy the signal that they found at a TV station. But then the police raid that conspiracy group and Nada and Keith discover hidden tunnels underneath the city that lead to a giant banquet hall where a speaker confirms everything we've been told. Yes, there are aliens. Yes, they are taking advantage of the Earth. And yes, they've gotten to power with the help of other humans that have sold us all out. And so it all ends with uh, his final act is getting to the top of the TV station, finding the signal source and shooting it before he himself is shot and dies. But the world is awoken and everyone can see the truth now. And we're just left to go, what next? Yeah. And that's They Live. It's so brilliant. It that ending is. It is so brilliant. Um, I usually get frustrated by endings like that in the moment. And then I reflect on it. And like by 30 minutes later, I'm like, no, that's, that's the perfect way to end that movie. I think yeah. I literally said like, what the hell? As soon as it got yep. to the credits, yep. like, wait, <laughs> I want more. Did I miss something? Like, did, does the film stop? Like, <laughs> oh, there's something in the middle of the credits. Gotcha. No, no. Yeah. Um, no, the last shot is a woman having sex really lazily and slowly on a guy, and then she sees yep. he's one of them. And I can't help but wonder, and I wanted to ask you, what do you think happens now? What do you think happens when the credits roll? What, what happens in this world now that everyone's woken up? What do you think? <sighs> what do I think? Um, you know, if anything, it has showed me that there would be, there would probably be some kind of civil unrest regarding it, obviously. But I think what would end up ultimately happening is something very similar to what we saw with the, with the, the humans selling people out, right? Um, is that you would find people agreeing and working with these 
aliens or or like more than welcoming them and you know who knows maybe they aren't that bad but they at least started off doing a truly kind of nefarious thing so you know i i personally think as a whole especially because you know we really see it through the united states we don't know how how deep it, it goes it could be really all over the world and it's it's i think heavily implied that it is um but that's that because it's a mainly focused in the United States, I think it has a big commentary and especially looking at the colors of the aliens. I mean, it, they're, they're red and blue. I can't imagine what that's trying to say. Oh, and they're white. Their eyes are very, very white. That makes sense. Oh, um, I didn't think about the eyes. Yeah. It's so you've got the American patriotic look right there. Um, but it is, I, I personally just think that like there would be some unrest. There would be, it would growing pains, but eventually we would just come to accept whatever the fate is probably because they gave us some money or something. Yeah, no, that's that. I agree with you essentially. Um, I'm, I'm worried that what would, I mean, not worried, but what would happen is nothing. People would get Mm -hmm. upset and there would be a big campaign, a big advertising campaign uh, with a lot of money funneled at humanizing them. And saying right. like, oh, well, yeah, they look weird, but they gave us Coca-Cola and Monsanto right. and all these wonderful things and, and and electric cars. And they can't be all bad. And right. it would be like it, the campaign would be putting the onus on you, the public, on like, why are you being so xenophobic? You should welcome <laughs> these people into this country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and the people who resisted that would be labeled as like dissidents, kind of like, you know, Antifa and right. would be brushed away. And the the big thing would be, what is my choice here? I either mm-hmm. become a like Terminator Skynet style resistance fighter, or I continue living in my two bedroom place and go to work and I get McDonald's and Starbucks and what? Well, I think the film asks you that like throughout mm-hmm. the entire thing. Like, I think that's like the really interesting part is like, is you know the 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 thing is he puts on the magic sunglasses right like basically a comic book situation and the truth is revealed to him and as he try at first he doesn't want to believe it at first yeah. it's 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 really kind of jarring he he takes them off he's like there's no way this is real like he thinks it's a joke and then when he tries to show it in the infamous six six minute fight scene to Keith David Keith David literally is fighting against the truth mm-hmm. in, in that kind of sequence and, and so can- I. And you can kind of make an argument over whether or not he's fighting it because he he can't bear to think of shattering the the like lie that he has or he knows he's accepted the lie. Right. And the idea of seeing the results of your decision of being willfully ignorant is like is death, is a form of death. It's mm-hmm. like I kept thinking of back to like the matrix and I can't help but think that this movie inspired some elements of the matrix to some extent. Oh, absolutely. I mean the red and the blue pill Mm -hmm. and people waking up and Mm -hmm. um, the idea that you have to be forced kind of um, is that's a little bit different because in the matrix, the problem is choice. Uh, Right. But um, it's interesting. The, the sunglasses is, is a great uh, like symbol of, ideology or removing ideology there i think you said it like they're literally a lens of truth mm-hmm. um let's see where did i, I want to make sure i yeah so rather than like obscuring vision the sunglasses provide clarity from the imposed ideology of fascism in democracy's clothing 
So by wearing the glasses, you're actually removing imposed ideology to interact with the world as it is to develop your own ideology. Right. And that's what's kind of like at odds is, am I capable of deciding my own ideology when my whole life it's been decided for me? That sounds so scary. You're throwing me out of the nest. 100%. 100%. And I and we know I bet you know people and I know people that are like that. They are they are scared and they don't want to recognize the the reality of the situations, right? Like we see it now. We see it in the protests that have happened all throughout this year. We see it in our presidency. We we it, it is abundantly clear that there are a lot of people that don't want to actively put the sunglasses on and, and kind of have a recognition of that. Um, you know, another thing that I like to point out with the sunglasses, at least that I, I think is, is interesting as well is, you know, there's the old adage that the, uh, window to the soul is the eyes, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, um, and the sunglasses actually block you from showing your eyes. So there is a level of soullessness to that. And when you, when the world is seen through these sunglasses, it's black and white, it loses its color. It be, it literally changes. And I think that's such an interesting thing is that in a way, when you, when you cut off your own soul, right? Like you cover your eyes and you remove yourself, you have an ego death as it were, because that's kind of what that situation is. You recognize your reality is nothing but a projection of what you want it to be. And these sunglasses remove that for you. You recognize now that the reality you live in is nothing that you have control over. It has been decided for you. It is. And I think that's what makes the change scary for uh, Keith David in that sequence. And because again, you know, to to give John Carpenter credit, Keith David is also pissed because Rowdy Roddy Piper killed cops and is now like a wanted criminal. So like fair point. But when he sees it, when he looks at it, it's really interesting to look at it from a, a race standpoint as well. He is far quicker to accept this reality situation than, than Rowdy Roddy Piper was. Yeah, I really think it's interesting the use of his wife and kids, his family, at least the way that I inter- – well, before we, move, before we move on to that, I, I want right. to respond to the point that you made a second ago because I think that's a really interesting uh, alternative to the way that I interpreted it. The the black and whiteness – and so, so I read a quote that said that the colorization is a reference to Ted Turner at the time was colorizing a lot of 50s films and people were mm-hmm. resistant to that. And so hearing that perspective from the director, I interpreted the black and whiteness of like the color and like, you know, the rose colored glasses of how beautiful and Disney color fantasy the real world is, is a lie. All the color that we see, I think that's what you were saying, okay, is that like the color that you see is prescribed. You think that's red because you've been told that's red. But the truth is that, yeah, things are up for you to decide, kind of. It's up for you to determine for yourself. Um, Right. But yes, making the racial, they don't really, it's not the movie's main point. If it were, it would be a completely different movie if it was about the, like, uh, exploitation of black people in uh, society or like the systemic uh, abuse of black people. But there is like two little throwaway moments where we get some perspective into that. And it's like one at the beginning comes so early that I forgot anything supernatural was going to happen. I was just so engrossed in what um, Keith David is explaining when he first mentions his wife and kids. He says that they were closing steel mills left and right and they bailed out the steel mills. And you know what they did? They gave themselves raises. 
Uh, And he says, if they close one more steel mill, I say we take those pipes to their fancy foreign fucking cars. And uh, our main character, who has no name but is white, says, you know, you ought to have more patience in this world. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my God. I actually didn't recognize that at all. Because, again, I'm I'm waiting for the, the supernatural element to happen. But holy fuck, I never... Oh, he doesn't rough. get it at least yeah. yet because he hasn't right, been awoken. At least yet. Right, right, and I and I think there's there's a couple of different ways of being awoken in that. Right, like Keith David is familiar with Los Angeles. This is a drifter coming into Los Angeles, and anybody who's been to LA can tell you that it is a strange, weird, wild place. And so already we have a stranger in a strange land. And not only that, he's a drifter that is now going to be with a conspiracy group homeless encampment so he's even more fish out of water there's a lot of things that are showing you just how almost naive rowdy roddy piper is and to see it like right there in the dialogue especially about a in in a way a race and class issue is is really interesting to the the general thesis of of uh they live yeah because just look at it from from keith david's perspective if a black man were to do some of the things that happened in this movie, like murder police officers or just wantonly shoot up a bank. He (laughs) would not be able to show his face anywhere. It would be a very different set of circumstances. And I feel like that's kind of why Keith David. So now to go to his family, I interpreted his family to mean black people. And so he can't afford to be awoken because he's putting his family at risk by doing so by like attempting to shake the status quo is very much like a, um, well, I guess in this case, it's not peaceful protest. It's more like Malcolm X, but once you do that, the bell can't be unrung. And that's kind of like what the police do in advance, instead of waiting for the dissidents to make themselves known, they just mow down their little Hooverville, their little shanty Mm -hmm. town, which wouldn't exist if not for the like Reaganomics that John Carpenter is condemning with this movie. Right. Exactly like the, right. The whole existence of this like shantytown Hooverville is because of, so the overarching theme that we're talking about here, and I guess technically we moved our way into my next segment, which is screaming themies, uh, <laughs> is this condemnation of commercialization and Reaganomics. The, the thing Keith David says of the golden rule, he who has the gold makes the rules. And mm-hmm. it's this like painful truth that we all live with an inconvenient truth that the, that what Roddy believes at the beginning, that there, it really is a meritocracy that you really do stand a chance and that any one of us could be the next uh, billionaire. If we just dug in and pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps. But the truth is that the rules are there and they only work for them. It's rules for thee and not for me that, I want to uh, highlight the Tulsa race massacre that I only learned about recently because of Lovecraft country, which is Mm. an entire town of black people following the rules laid out to them by capitalism. And that was before Reaganomics and being bombed and erased off of the planet because of hateful jealousy that Mm -hmm. even when you play by the rules, you can't win. Yeah, they cover that in Watchmen too. I mean, it's a it's such an important thing to like. And again, that was uh, the whole country had an awakening to that. I remember seeing articles basically being like, "Wait a second, what is the Tulsa massacre? Uh-huh. I didn't know about the Tulsa massacre." Um, I I talked to my mother about it, who has a master's in education, and she said that it wasn't part of her 
uh, criteria. Her master's in education is in history, and that wasn't part of her learning. She fa- she knew about it, but that wasn't part of the curriculum. And you know, she went to Vanderbilt, which is in the deep south, as wow. it were. So it, you know, questionable at, at best. But it is it is really fascinating that even even if you play by the rules, even if you do everything that capitalism and consumerism tells you to do those that have the power can do whatever they want. And, and they, they made those rules for you. They created this reality for you. So no matter what, you're kind of subject to their whim. And in the case of the disgusting act of the Tulsa massacre, they literally killed these people because they were scared of, of this community getting some semblance of power. Yeah. Or they were scared of being faced with the centuries of active moral apathy toward black people and that with their success coming closer and closer to your door, you are now faced with coming to terms with wait, that's a doctor, but I think they're all stupid and worse than me. I either have to change and learn or murder them (laughs) and keep my life the same. It is as it is. And, and so that's, and so it's interesting because the movie plays with the like fear of a shadow cabal that there's some uh, extra like political governmental body that's made up of well in this movie it's aliens they use the right. allegory to say that it's aliens but the thing is there is a shadow cabal controlling the government and the world and it's not as sensationalist as aliens it's the one percent of billionaires oligarchs and corporations that. Mm-hmm govern global politics all usually toward making the most money possible at the simultaneous expense of human welfare. And I don't ever, I don't believe that policy is ever enacted specifically to murder people (laughs) unless the money outweighs the like uh, marketing damage. Right. Exactly. Like if, if you're, if you stand to have a net gain over, the emotions lost like that, that they don't care. You know, if the rep can, if your reputation can take a couple of hits and at the same time, you're lining your pockets, it doesn't matter to them. Um, I do think it's really interesting that you bring up the shadowy cabal thing and the alien aspect of it, because the way that I, I see they live and I see the invasion of these aliens and them kind of assimilating into their life, into lifestyle is they put themselves into the positions of power. They recognize the human positions of power. Um, there's a moment where there's a newscaster who's one of them. The camera crew is part of them. So they recognize media is what works to control these people. I mean, come on, he blows up the signal, like which literally looks like a satellite dish on top of a, a building. Like it, it's meant to take down the media notion of it. So there's the sensationalization of the media, but then we also see it when he puts the sunglasses on and looks at billboards because then that in, goes in line with the marketing aspect, right? Marketing has power over humans. And I think if we continue to look at all the different elements that are obviously, you know, seen through these, uh, through the lens, we'll, we'll come to understand that really, and, and you, you touched upon it earlier, the main enemy to what I think John Carpenter is saying is money is, is money is the enemy of the people in this capitalism and consumerism as a culture that we build our society off of is dangerous and is the enemy that will lead us to apathy that will allow us to be invaded by foreign foreign whatever to uh undermine and destroy us from the inside out i, I, re- I 
that's how I've I've always read They Live. Not saying that he's anti, you know, uh, immigration or anything of the sort, but like basically saying that like through apathy, through American culture, uh, apathy reigns, and therefore it makes us weaker as a nation. So, do you feel that this movie is a communist message? Uh, I don't think so because it's not necessarily uh, pro communism in nature. Like the shanty town. Uh, has communist kind of beliefs of like the community is going to work together and we will help provide for one another. But it also, it, it's not necessarily a, a super strong communist message because what we see is we see people willingly engaging in this, this lifestyle anyway, regardless of, of Rowdy Roddy Piper's truth. Uh, everybody else is still consuming along and it's no issue. You know, the, the audience can, drag whatever they want from the the film they can see it as like the glasses oh my gosh the whole world is consumerism and all that kind of stuff but it's like there will be people that look at that and say oh well that's that that's life i guess i have to play the game or not you know and and for a lot of people money gives them comfort it gives them all that kind of stuff so i i'm not so certain it, it provides a communist push rather than just like an anti-capitalism push i would agree i would say that the message it, it gets a little muddled i would say it starts very focused on communism that the working class is being oppressed by the ruling class but the message gets kind of muddled the further we get in because they're working the i don't know what else to call them so i'm going to call them thems and right. so the thems work at like the bank and are bank mm-hmm. tellers. And I wouldn't necessarily think a bank teller is the 1% ruling class, maybe the right. owner of that bank. And then later, like you said, the camera crew, like, yes, it does make sense that they're influencing the media, but a camera operator isn't the, the 1%. If these aliens right. were truly like intent on getting theirs in like, you know, capitalism to the nth degree, then that camera guy would be working on his side hustle so that he mm-hmm. has his camera empire where he rents cameras out to other people. And so that kind of muddled the message a little bit for me. And that's why I can't firmly say it's a communist film. Right. There is, I think there's something to unpack in that though, right? Is like maybe even, cause we don't, we don't get to know how long these have been here, right? Sure. We don't get to know how long the thems have been around. So if, for example, the Thems came in like 50 years prior to this, this is when they like really snuck in. What if they're a victim of their own cycle? What if they too became a victim of the human capitalist machine and now think like, oh, if I work hard enough, I can become like the camera guy can become an anchor or the anchor can become the head of the studio because we don't get to see that kind of like the before or the after. Are you saying we're that kind of, we're he's kind of in left the wrong up to our own thing? Sorry, go ahead. No, 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 no. I don't. I don't think he's. I. I mean, murder's wrong anyway. I don't because, like, the thing is, you know, I, at no point, save for the cops that try to arrest him, do they really seem to like they want to kill him. And I think that's like a really important point. Is like they don't. They're not trying to kill you as much as they are trying to strip you of your freedom, which is a very pro-American way of being. I mean, yeah. if you if you look at Rowdy Roddy Piper, and I think the casting is very on point, is he looks like your classic American, like, superhero. He's got flowing blonde hair. Yeah, big mullet. He's huge. He wears a flannel and jeans. And, I mean, there's a sequence where he's, like, literally got, like, a sledgehammer and he's doing hard construction. And, like, it's he's very pro-Americana in his imagery. So I think that's I think also that's just what the film is trying to do is it's like America will 
destroy itself and will attack itself without listening to itself sometimes. You know, again, he follows this rule, these shadowy cabal saying like these people that tell him that the, the thems are bad and that the thems are ruining society. And maybe they are, maybe it is truly the thems that like destroyed America. Right. Yeah. But we don't know that we don't get to see that. We just get to see it from this dude who is, who becomes woke and then literally lays siege because he's so angry with the wokeness he has felt. Yeah, he becomes an anarchist. His whole goal and even the um, conspiracy like group's goal, or I guess the rebels, is to overthrow the system. But there's no plan of what to do right. or rebuild it or anything. So it really is like anarchy and they're armed. And it's it's frankly inspiring like i don't want to go so far as to say that this movie is trying to incite like rebellion but it certainly inspires feelings of like yeah retribution like i right. mean cops the way that we're portrayed listen it's my podcast so i don't know how you feel about cops but a cab and so oh, the more brother, movies A-Cab, that i see A-Cab. okay me, so i mean like uh, do you mind if i hop in here real quick go for like, it two two instances that i want to touch on one Back in May, I was uh, arrested at one of the George Floyd protests and I was shot with a rubber bullet. So fuck the cops, like fuck LAPD. You know, I'm in a, I'm in a lawsuit with them right now, thanks to the National Guild of Lawyers uh, offering up their legal services. But I have uh, ever since that time, I have become even, I mean, I was critical of the police before, but like this is now just like, again, it was we were we were demonstrating peacefully and they escalated the situation. And then just the other day, two days after uh, Trump or when on Tuesday, when Trump declared false victory, uh, the next day I went out to downtown L.A. with a, a group of protesters. We had a march in the streets and there was a moment where a car tried to drive through the group uh, and one of our security personnel went and, and laid on the hood of the car to stop them. And we were being followed by some cops because, you know, they want to make sure that nothing's going to happen. And as soon as as soon as they saw that car trying to drive through and they saw our protester lay on the the hood, one of the cops jumped out of the car, charged our protester, not the person trying to drive through the group, charged our protester and tried to pull him away. And all of us got our group together and pulled the protester away from the cops. We we uh, deescalated the situation, got our protester back and continued on. Uh, The cops are are psychos i i really have no respect for police so say what you want a cab fuck them all that's awful that that happened (laughs) that's very real that is awful i applaud you for being brave enough to go out there and put yourself in in that kind of environment that's a really important thing i'm a big white guy right like i'm (laughs) i'm six foot one i weigh 245 pounds i I used to play football. I know that like I I can be intimidating. And if I can take a bullet, if I can take a rubber bullet or even a real bullet, fuck it. If I can take anything where somebody else isn't going to get hurt, especially considering, you know, there is such a racial profiling in police violence. I would rather get beat the hell up than let something worse happen to anybody else. Like, yeah. bring it on. I mean, it's awful, but we need people with privilege to be there with them like like you're doing. Yep. And- because of that visibility, it's so much easier for people, for, for awful people to write it off if there's no allies out there. And so it's, yeah. that's great, man. That's awesome. I, mean, I have af- no idea. Af- yeah. After this, I'm going down to Pershing Square to, to be a part of a celebration. And, and hopefully it doesn't get too out of hand because you know that there's going to be some Trumpers out there as well. And the, and the cops will be around. So I'll keep you posted if anything happens. But. Oh, my God. Please <laughs> do. Um, yeah. Uh, 
it just I was it hits on the point that I was going to make that the more I see of these movies that have a scene of people beating of the police beating people like near death it's 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 nothing when mm. you've seen Rodney King or right. George Floyd being murdered on camera it's yep. it's it's some actors going like yeah yeah and barely hitting them and then going like ah oh, it's it's it never feels as authentic no, but it's hitting on the exact same things. And this movie came out in 1988. And the fact that we've gone backwards, it seems like, like we said earlier, the, the subtlety of the 1980s and how it's like, oh, we have magazines that are really just there to tell you that you're ugly. And we have movies that are really just there to tell you, hey, hey, hey there you go. For people who can't see, he's got himself a book that just says obey. Yeah, it's it's literally meant to look like the magazines in the film. It's it's a pretty fun factoid book. I'll I'll let you take a look at it at some point. That's awesome. But, Please. Um oh, that reminds me of one question. The the first them that we see that grabs a newspaper, what is he getting out of the newspaper? I thought all of the media was propaganda and just said obey and stuff. Right. So that almost to me influences the point I made earlier mm -hmm. of like, this is probably somebody who's gotten suckered into their own comfortability yeah. or like, or the other idea is that they are keeping up appearances. They, they, they recognize that they are playing uh, the game. Exactly. It's all part of the game, which is again, a bigger commentary about how capitalism is a game. It's yeah. a shitty monopoly was meant to be a satirical board game and it became like the symbol of, of consumerism and capitalism. So it's what Frank says at the beginning. He says, uh, it's all a big, oh, excuse me. It's all a big game. And the game is the name of the game is make it through life. Yep. Except everybody else is trying to fuck you up every step <laughs> of the way. And you should be too. You'd be stupid not to, because he's going to screw with you if you don't screw with him first. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, really quickly, the subtlety in this movie is cute because now, I mean, Prop 22, that was the Uber and Lyft one, right? That one passed yeah. because of Uber and Lyft's ability to pump five videos per YouTube clip of these lies telling mm -hmm. you that like drivers like me, we don't want rights. We don't want to be treated like people. And to, to take it even further, my friend yesterday was explaining to me that when he came back from a trip recently and I had to take a, an Uber or a Lyft, they specifically put the yes on 22 banner under the cheaper option to, to trick the public into saying, if you want to keep these lower prices, you better vote yes on 22. And it worked. I mean, I talked to so many drivers who also said, like, I can't open up the app without seeing a yes on 22 ad oh. or I can't even like scroll through. And it worked. One of the one of my dear friends that I considered a pretty savvy individual, somebody who was smart and able to question his own reality, voted yes on it. And he's like, no, I'm protecting my rights as a driver. And it's like, do you not understand that this strips you of your rights on so many different ways? Sure, it, off it, it says they offer the flexibility, but your flexibility wasn't going to change. That, that was never part of the conversation. It was just more about giving you unionization ability and a protection for your health. Because, for example, right now, if you're assaulted as an Uber driver, you actually uh, cannot like file a lawsuit with Uber to protect yourself from that. That is a... They tell you that you have to go to a small claims court or to take it up into a private law uh, situation. So it, it is ridiculous that, again, basically capitalism allowed us to dupe the working class individuals 
uh, to continually line the pocketbook of these massive corporations. Like imagine, imagine if you will, they spent this money on giving their drivers health insurance or, or finding some kind of options, but instead they spent millions of dollars on these campaigns. Uh huh. So. Just to pump lie after lie after lie. So now in 2020, you can get up and lie directly to your audience to manipulate them. You don't have to invent a campaign about, oh, we're going to be tough on crime. You can just say, I want more black people in prisons. I want mm -hmm. more of them in prisons. And people will go, yeah, you don't need an insipid like sci-fi signal. All you, you can say the quiet part loud now, as people say. Right. You don't need a dog whistle to silently secret police. You can stand on a podium and literally give them a direct order during a live televised debate. And that's where we are right now. Yeah. And that's, and that is truly, truly just abysmal that, that we have gotten to that point. And, you know, again, it, I don't know what sparks it. Maybe it is ego. Maybe it's everyone just thinking that they know better than everybody else. And they refuse to accept facts because that challenges what they perceive the reality to be i mean imagine imagine if you will they see these every little factoid or the people that are fact checking the the president or anthony fauci as micro doses of these sunglasses right uh -huh. they don't want to take them they don't want to wear them because that again disrupts the disillusionment that they have you know there's there's so many people out there that probably imagine themselves like Donald Trump. They're like, oh, that was a, he was an everyday man who pulled himself off. I could do that too. And you know what that means? I can become president. And it's like, well, sure, in America, anybody can become president. But number one, should they? And number two, not really, because you need, like, you need millions upon millions of dollars to become even close to elected. Like you look at all the look at all the people and how much they spent. Look at what Bloomberg spent to not even make it past the primary. Right. Again, I, I think this all goes back to what John Carpenter is saying, like in general about the, the system and they live and the American system and the American construct is that it is all run by a need to consume, to obey and to buy. And that's it. You know, you have people obeying the cops, right? Like telling protesters, well, if you didn't, if you didn't do it this way, you'd be fine. Or if George Floyd wasn't a criminal, if he had obeyed the officers, this wouldn't have happened. I'm right? fine with racism, but I draw the line at stopping traffic. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> like, oh, and they'll scream and yell when they get a parking ticket. You know, uh, the, uh, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, yeah. you know, and, and you have buy and consume also as a pretty, you know, big, obvious. It's called best buy. It's right. not very subtle. Right. And, and again, we look at our world and it's like, no, everyone likes to consume. Everyone likes to buy. Retail therapy is a thing. People love to get from Amazon. We saw that in the pandemic that Bezos made billions of dollars. That's because we were told. That's because we were told by the same things in the 80s is that if you spend lots of money, that will help the economy. You got to yeah, move the money around. You're stimulating the economy when it really isn't. You're, you're stimulating the, the money of those that control the economy. Yes. Those, and that, then, those that are elevated. And then they don't put that money back in. It's what the Panama Papers revealed that, yes, the money is being circulated by us into the economy, which is then being inhaled by hungry, hungry hippos and stashed away. Yep. So my last yep. question for you, Christian, is where are our sunglasses? How do we wake <laughs> up here now? That's that's such an interesting question because I, I find myself asking that now. You know, I try to have conversations with people. Um, there was a there was a Trump rally 
protest thing that happened just a street away from where I live. And I went out there and there was one Black Lives Matter counter protester. This was really before the election cycle hit. Um, and I went out there and I talked to her and I talked to that group and they, they represented a small group that was based in the Valley. And uh, then when the, the Trump supporters came over, I tried to engage in meaningful conversation. I, because I, I truly do think it's through conversation that we can kind of talk about our grievances. Uh, we can discuss things that are at our, we're at odds with and kind of get over it together. I don't think that, you know, we need to be sympathizing with anybody that has been openly engaging in the violent rhetoric or like the, the genocidal language or anything of that sort. Like really it's hard for me to, for me to have a serious conversation with those that are so blindly drinking the QAnon Kool-Aid or, or the Trump, Trump tears, you know, whatever, whatever you want to call it. I, I just think that like our sunglasses, our sunglasses are happening. Like if, if in a way we're like slowly putting them on, <laughs> we're slowly recognizing that things are not as, as they want to be. And I, and I, in a way, like, I know this will sound really strange, but I'm glad that a blue wave didn't happen during this election. Um, and the reason specifically is I think this is vital for people to recognize that the 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 entire nation was at odds this was not something that could be so, like it wasn't going to go one way or another because trump and his allies they know how to bring up their own team they know how to put up a fight and this was a fight i mean election night coverage was terrifying for a lot of people i know that but we all knew that it was also going to come in later and yes we've we've had a tremendous switching of states like historical state flipping but we still also need to recognize that donald trump didn't get blown out of the water didn't get not all the republicans lost their seats you know and what this is is a continued conversation and it's a continued conflict mm -hmm. this is you know i i i volunteer or at least i'm starting to volunteer with a group called refuse fascism uh los angeles and they specifically talk about donald trump trying to steal this election from 2016 on and how it was always just like a part of the plan and i and i don't disagree with that but it is uh, one of the things that i think we all need to do is recognize that like refusing fascism black lives matter uh the socialist or the communist movement all of this uh the uh extinction rebellion group whatever they are um all of these very progressive leaning groups need to come together and find the common ground to to push towards the better fight to become a stronger uh force of change because with a fragmentation and i think fragmentation on all sides really but um it, it is only through the unification of our sole powerful progressive voice that we can actually push towards putting the sunglasses all the way on and then you know recognizing that we don't have to blow up the media uh tower we just need to change it we need yeah. to just we just need to tweak it and and things can change for that better but it's again i think the most important thing is for people to recognize that there is a problem and that uh the number one thing it's it works in relationships it works in drug addiction it works in so many different aspects is to admit that there is a problem and find the common ground or the way to come over it Yes. And I totally agree with that. I, I think back to an interview I saw on CBS Bay Area about Trump supporters who they said, 
you know, historically in the Bay Area, you have to be really secret about being a Republican. You can't let anybody know because then once you do, you're kind of a pariah. It's a very blue area. But now we feel like vindicated enough to go on a bridge and hold up Trump signs and stuff. And I feel like there's been an unexpected, not, you know, coronavirus, coronavirus deaths, notwithstanding, there's been an unexpected positivity to unveiling that because before people felt racist thoughts kept them to themselves and just kind of held on to it while the rest of us in our liberal bubbles started to believe progress was happening and now those people who have held on to those beliefs for the first time are putting them out in the light where Mm -hmm. they have to be critical about them and it's either jumping into a facebook group that fans the flames and there is no criticalness or it's going out into the world to those Black Lives Matter events and maybe seeing a black person for the first time <laughs> that they didn't realize, oh, they're, they don't have bones through their nose and they're not witch doctors. It's a person. Like right. that kind of result could actually benefit like in the long run. Now that the people are out there, you can't ignore having that conversation and I can't pretend like they're going away. Right, exactly. And I think that's something important too, is like, there have been, I've been seeing a lot of memes of like, oh, now that Biden's elected, like, can't wait for things to go back to normal. And it's, it's done in jest because what is normal anyway? Mm-hmm. You know, what, what does this look like? But I think something you brought up is really important is like the open critique with what your personal beliefs are. And I think that does need to happen on the left, even the progressive side as well. We have to be willing to be critical of ourselves because if we aren't willing to look at ourselves and say, like, listen, I'm going to say something that's like I think about five, five years ago or whenever the Black Lives Matter movement first started, I I didn't subscribe wholly. And I, I simply asked the question of like, why can't it be all lives matter? Yes, I was you in know? the same boat. I, I really did. I really did say that at one point. And one of my more progressive friends was like, no, 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 no. We're going to have a conversation. We're going to talk about this. And I, I thank him for it. And and it really kind of opened up my eye. Was it an, an uncomfortable conversation? Of course, nobody wants to be told that the way you've been doing things or the or the person or the way you believe it may be incorrect in some way. You know, nobody wants to be corrected, but it isn't. It's only through an ability to again put aside our own egos and allow the critique to happen that we then not only strengthen what is weak about our own resolve, but we we can bolster the weaker parts of our belief with new knowledge and new emotional uh, context. Yeah, I but. agree with you that the glasses are being put on. And if anything, <laughs> the revealing of the, gosh, chud Trump supporters <laughs> is the start of those glasses being put on. And it's going to be right. helped by AOC and by uh, Bernie, hopefully if he gets into the Biden uh, administration. But yeah. um, this has been a fantastic conversation, Christian. And we just have one last thing to do. We have to rate this movie on a scale of one to five thumbs, one being the worst and five being the best. Uh, Christian, what do you think of They Live? I mean, to me, it's a five thumber. Right? Oh, yeah. Like, it's it's. It was hugely influential in like what I consider my voice to be. I've always been, you know, I, I watched Monty Python when I was a kid. Uh, so I like absurd. Um, I, gr- I grew up listening to this uh, political comedic group called the Capital Steps back in the, the Bush era. Um, very, very young version of me was listening to that. And all of that kind of influenced. And, to, and then I saw this for the first time when I was like, I want to say like 23 
my uh, my sister's husband showed it to me, and it really just kind of blew my my mind of not only what could a film do, um, but what kind of conversation can be had in such a unique way. I mean, this is truly one of the most interesting discussions about capitalism and consumer culture, and it's done in a horror sci-fi lens. That's rad. That's inventive and you know, it's, it's just through and through it's entertaining. I, I, I am never bored by it and it's, it moves at a quick pace, you know, like there, there is a six minute fight scene. Yes. <laughs> that is, a, that is a thing that happens. And you know what? It's awesome. <laughs> um, and then traditionally we award those thumbs to either a character or to a director or some crew. Who are you going to give those thumbs to? Um, okay, well, I mean, I guess like John Carpenter would yeah. get the first thumb, right? Because as you pointed out pretty early on, he did a lot of the leg lifting on this. He he really kind of um, made this a reality. I mean, he's a master composer. What he does is he builds mood do, and tension. Do, do. Yeah, I, you know, I say master, like, you know, because I know exactly what he's going for. Like, I guess it's more succinct rather than like heavily nuanced. Yeah. He, he just knows what he wants. And I think that's really great. Um, I give it up to Rowdy Roddy Piper. Uh, and Keith David, those would be my next two, because again, without them, the film wouldn't work too well. Um, unfortunately, I, I, you know, if I had to remove a thumb or at least like recommend the thumb be addressed better, um, John Carpenter needs to do a little better job writing female characters, uh, you know, under underutilized in this film. I think there would have been a really interesting discussion with gender, especially identity and all this. You know, at one point he literally points to a woman and says, she's real fucking ugly, you know, and like it's a it's a joke. It's a it's a gag. But like at the same time, it's it's like, OK, so that's what we're going to do. We have the the hot damsel in distress and then we've got this like ugly old lady and that's it that's your gags all right fine. yeah it's a but, shame that the only female character with a name is a treacherous betrayer right exactly exactly and you're like oh well that that sucks like, and she wasn't even an alien right she wasn't she was just a human who, yeah. who sought out her own gains um i give the fourth thumb to the score uh i think the score truly is what helps kind of paint the picture um on that and then i i will give the fifth thumb to uh to america that I think I, I, I think that's, you know, again, like John Carpenter was willing to have the conversation with America to be critical of it, to hopefully say, hey, America, put your sunglasses on. Let's talk about this. Let's let's begin this conversation. And it's such a shame it tanked at the box office. But if you look at it and we talked about it a little earlier, people don't want to wear the sunglasses. So no surprises that it did that because they're just not interested in seeing what is truly out there. Wow, high praise from Christian with five thumbs, a five thumber, a perfect film according to Christian. <laughs> I would I would say so, yeah. You know, and that's that's an interesting thing. Perfect films uh I I think vary from person to person, right? And from filmmaker to filmmaker cuz mm -hmm. a perfect film may not be the most enjoyable film. But like for example, I love the Wachowski's Speed Racer film. To me that's a, <laughs> to me that's a perfect film because it's it does exactly what it sets out to do. Right. And I think visually astound you. Right. And I think that's exactly what they live does is it, it's it accomplishes exactly what it sets out to do in all the different aspects of it. You know, whatever, whatever it, does, it needs to make the film, it hits all the right boxes. It makes me wonder if they were to do a reboot or a remake of this today, what would that look like? Because I feel like social leftist movies like this are few and far between. You mentioned Get Out. I can't right. name a second one like in the last few, I guess 
there's that new movie, His House, on Netflix that kind of explores immigration uh, and um, assimilation. But one that takes this hard a stance on essentially the industry that it's in feels a little weird. I don't know if a movie would be this honest about what it's doing, you know? I don't, I don't think so. I think... I think even still, like, yeah, I think Get Out's probably our most recent close, like, hey, we're gonna we're gonna really put a magnifying glass to this and and make you pay attention. Yeah. Um I, I think what we would probably run into today is a weaker watered down version where it's like social media is really the like the cancerous thing. And we've seen that in various films already where they try to like take down what social media has done. Yeah. It's like, nah, man, it's it's part of the big problem. It's or how it's, or how they'll have like a ghost or spirit trapped within the phone or something. That oh, was, right. Uh, exactly. When a stranger calls or one missed call or one of those. Yeah. And it's just like, no, you're not even willing to like, you're not looking beyond. You're not looking for the deeper, heavier, larger route. You're just seeing a byproduct and you don't like that byproduct. Yeah. You're offloading the responsibility onto some like middleman. Uh, right. Precisely. So- yeah, I feel like this wouldn't, it's, like, as a sci-fi, I feel like this kind of commentary and critique couldn't be done in any other, like, genre but sci-fi and uh, horror, because those are the genres that take, uh, just historically take what's happening in the world and say, well, if that's true, what else could be true? Let's raise that to the nth degree. Let's pick, like, one right. thing that's uh, normal in our world and zoom it to the top. And so in this case, he picked capitalism. Uh, and so... I, I have to give this movie four thumbs, and oh. unfortunately, I did get bored. There are a couple oh. long shots of Roddy wandering around, <laughs> and in this scene, Roddy wanders around <laughs> while we get to listen to do, 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 <laughs> like six times. And the fight scene, okay, I love a good fight scene, but it just keeps going, and it's great, it's fun. And, and the little, like, what was with the drones? That that seemed like something that might have been bigger in the script at some point that they just kind of brushed away. Because mm-hmm. that's eerily prophetic too, the idea of like security drones. But were they invisible to the people? Like right. the, the, the concept is greater than the film treats it, in my opinion. The idea and like the logline of, oh, you wear glasses and they let you see the world uh, is so cool. But the culmination of it, like when he gets to the banquet... I thought he was going to slaughter those people. I thought mm-hmm. there was going to be some kind of like big, uh, you're, you're not trapped. You're not, I'm, you're trapped in here with me. Like Rorschach kind of moment, kind right. of like building off of all the violence we'd seen before, but it, we have violence, 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 and it leads to kind of an anticlimactic moment, especially for Keith David. I was pissed off how he gets killed just like yeah. really quickly in a blinker. You'll miss it moment. So I'm giving it four thumbs. And I'm going to have to award those thumbs. I'm going to give one to makeup wizard Frank Carey Sosa for his work on not only the, um, the the creatures, but also on a lot of the visual effects. Him and Jim mm-hmm. Danforth uh, were responsible for a lot of the like black and white uh, transition shots. Which it, it didn't occur to me how difficult that would be at the time because now right. we have you know like CGI and stuff. But they had to Super create easy. these complex composite shots that like. Uh, quickly blend between the two it's crazy Mm -hmm. so i gotta give one to him i got um i gotta give one to well roddy piper carries the whole movie and even though he's kind of like when he first puts on the glasses i did not understand what happened to him 
right. he suddenly becomes this crazy murderous. I came here to chew bubble gum and kick ass, and I'm all out of <laughs> bubble all gum. Out and I was like, where did that come from? And then he explains, like, oh, when you put them on, they're like a drug. But it was really jarring. Um, mm. Keith David, though, is consistently Keith David. I love everything he's in, so he gets a thumb. Absolutely. And then the last and final thumb I got to give to... Hmm. You know, I'm going to give it to Holly Thompson, uh, Meg Foster, because those eyes are working overtime. And unfortunately, even though she has almost nothing to do, she <laughs> does, like, put forward an air of, like, what else does she know? Right, right from the right from the get-go. Like, she seems like an alien. She plays that up, and she does that well with what she's given. So I wanted to pass her an extra thumb. All right. I, yeah, okay. Yeah, but that's no, they I, live. I think those are good good thumbs that is they live so uh christian where can people find you online if uh people wanted to follow you sure if you guys want to follow me on uh twitter and instagram my handle is uh at robot writer the robot is spelled r-o-e like my last name b-o-t and then writer w-r-i-t-e-r that's on twitter and instagram if you want to follow the martian broadcast uh, you can find that on most podcasting platforms. It's on Apple Podcasts, it's on Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, uh, Podbean, um, Listen, Stitcher. It's going to be on YouTube eventually, so keep an eye out on that. And you can follow the social medias uh, uh, on Twitter and Instagram as well, at Martian Broadcast. That's at M-A-R-T-I-A-N. Broadcast is B-R-D-C-S-T. I wanted to do a little shorthand on that one, but... Uh, yeah, that's where you guys can find me. I welcome anybody and everyone to to come and chat it uh, and check out our show. We we put a lot of love into it. And thank you, Kyle, for having me on. This has been a really, really awesome time. Oh, thank you, man. We'll be sure to put those in the uh, episode description. Um, but otherwise, yeah, you should definitely go check out the Martian broadcast wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. Um, and uh, any news on when people might be able to see Show Mercy or, or uh, um, the, the, the film proper? I'm sorry, I forgot the title. Oh, the complex. The um, complex. The, well, we're, we're still looking for producers. So producers, if you're out there looking to sink your teeth into uh, a sub $1 million budget thriller horror film, hit me up, you know, <laughs> check out the film. You can message me. I can send it to you. Uh, Show Mercy, the short film will probably be out by the end of the year, if I had to guess, uh, for everyone's viewing pleasure, which again, we hope that people will tune into and maybe point us in the right direction of of taking that that sam raimi route and making this film because you know again a, a lot of a lot of people who have uh given their time and energy to creating the short film also put in uh thoughts and notes to the feature as a whole because of their experience and so uh, the team i think is is anxiously waiting the opportunity to to pull off something magical well we'll have to follow up with you again uh by the end of the year until Absolutely. next time Thank you very much for listening to another episode of The Gory Days. Next week, we'll be talking about, I believe if I'm following my schedule correctly, I am legend. But until then, stay scary out there. The Gory Days.